preaching tonight will be Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Jesus said, Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus understood the importance of prayer. The accounts of his life uh, clearly show that. He prayed often. He prayed earnestly. But he also wanted his disciples to be people of prayer as well. During our recent summer series, one of the speakers had a lesson on the prayer that is recorded in Matthew 6. It was a good lesson and a he made some very good points. It it was noted, and correctly so, that Jesus gave that prayer as a model or as an example to the disciples of some things that they could include in their prayers. He was not teaching them to repeat that prayer in simply a rote fashion. He wasn't asking them to memorize it and then just say it over and over again. Nor was he telling them that those were the only words they could use in praying. It was a model, a starter, if you will, for them. This was not a prayer that Jesus could or would pray himself, as it is recorded Because in verse 12, you will note that he says, forgive us our debts. Or as Luke records in Luke 11, verse 4, and forgive us our sins. Jesus could not pray that because he had no sins. There were none to forgive. And so again, the prayer is designed for disciples to learn to pray in a more meaningful way. I want you to look for just a moment at one short sentence you heard John read a few moments ago. In Matthew 6 and verse 10, our Lord taught them to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are some implications in that statement that we need to understand. First of all, it is implied that God has a will. The, the word will indicates a, a purpose, a plan, a scheme of things that God has in mind for His creation. God has a will. And when you continue, your will be done. The words be done indicate an obligation. An obligation that God has toward His creation that He wants His will done. The will of God is not abstract. It's not nebulous. It's not just a mental assent to what God wants. It is a carrying out of what God intends to be done. And you and I need to think very carefully because when we express that sentiment, if we say, 
your will be done, we are saying that it is in our hearts, it is our desire that God's will be carried out. We don't intend to carry it out. There's no purpose in praying that. If we're not serious about God's will being carried out, we may as well not say, your will be done, because we're not going to help it to be done. Your will be done on earth. That's where we exist, earth. We're not yet in heaven, which we hope to be. We're not in hell, which we hope not to be. We're on the earth. And while we're living on the earth, our duty is to further God's will on the earth. I think there's some other implications that we have to draw in order to pray your will be done. And one of those implications is surely that God has the right to impose His will on us. Can God tell us what He wants us to do? What is His plan for us to do? If He's God, He can. And, and, and But that idea of God imposing His will on us forces us to adjust our thinking at times. Because one of the things that is certainly prevalent in 21st century Americans is the feeling that no one has the right to tell me what to do. Now, we understand there are certain limitations, uh, even on our refusal to do what someone wants us to do. A government can tell us what to do and, and punish us if we don't. The law enforcement people can impose a will on us should they choose to do so. Normally, we don't like for other human beings to impose their will. You can't tell me what to do. But this is not man. This is God. And if God is God and we are His creation, then He has the right to impose His will on us. Remember Paul's words in Romans 9.21? Does not the potter have power over the clay? If he's the potter and we're the clay, doesn't he have the power over us to tell us what he wants us to do? Certainly. We need to see something else, too. God not only has the right to impose his will, he has the ability to impose it, to enforce it. He has the ability to bring consequences on those who ignore his will, those who reject His will, those who defy His will, because He's God. And if He's God and He wants His will to be done and we refuse to do it or neglect to do it, He has the right to make us suffer the consequences. You know, there's a wonderful biblical example about Pharaoh thinking that God didn't have any right to impose his will on him, Moses comes to, to give him the message that God has said, let my people go. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who does God think he is telling me what to Pharaoh learned the hard way that God has the right to impose his will on others and to punish them should they choose not to obey it. I want you to think with me for just a few minutes tonight about the will of God. And I want you to realize with me that God's will is expressed in more than one way. 
we're going to mention five of them that that we understand relate God's will for man. First of all, there is what we could call the ideal will of God. And I think this is what is expressed in the text in Matthew 6. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the ideal will of God? Well, the ideal will of God is that human beings carry out God's will on the earth, notice, just as it's carried out in heaven. God wants us to do on the earth what He expects to be done in heaven. That means in heaven, God's will is carried out completely, absolutely, without question. Now, we put a little footnote there because it, it has not always been that way. There was a time in the distant past, we know not exactly when, when there was a rebellion in heaven. And we don't know all the details about that rebellion, but we read Second Peter 2 verse 4 and Jude the 6th verse, and we are certain that it happened. Listen to Second Peter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and then so on. Now, the context of that is Peter has warned that they're going to be false teachers and they're going to be punished. But he refers back to an incident in some time in history, again, we know not when, when angels evidently thought they didn't have to obey God. And there's plenty of evidence, of course, that the devil was the leader of that rebellion. Jude 6 says this, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Those angels will, of course, be eternally punished. That's not the case now. There is no rebellion in heaven. That's over. Not today, not in the future, not any time. From this point forward, will there be rebellion in heaven? God's will is being done. It will be done. And our goal, while we're on the earth, is to do God's will as perfectly, as completely as we can. Do we fall short? Certainly. But our prayer really ought to be, and I'd like for you to think about this. Could you pray this? Help me to do your will as fully as I am capable of doing it. Shouldn't that be our prayer? Father, I want to do your will as completely as you want it done. I want to do it perfectly. I'm a little concerned sometimes that our goal seems to be a little lower than that. We approach God and we say, oh God, I mess up a lot. I'm going to keep on messing up and get used to it. I think what we need to do is set the goal higher and and to want for ourselves every day to do the will of God perfectly. Also, the ideal will of God is that none should perish. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 assures us of that. Peter writes by inspiration, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God wants. He wants to save mankind. That's why Christ came. That's why He gave His life for us, so that all men could be saved. Sadly, though, the Scriptures also teach that most of humanity will be lost. Jesus talked about two ways, two gates. He says, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, Matthew 7, 14, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I'm as curious as you are to know how few is few. How many are going to be lost of the many that will be lost? We don't know that. But I know one thing. There's a great difference between many and few. And our Lord has shown us that most people, even though the ideal will of God is I want to say men, most people will not be saved. And that flies in the face of what some modern thinkers think everybody's going to be saved. Oh, maybe not Hitler or some of the worst murderers who ever lived, but everybody else is going to be saved. That is not what Jesus says. Now, to better understand the ideal will of God, what God wants, we also have to understand what we could call the permissive will of God. You see, God gives us, by His will, the power to choose. We can make right choices, Or we can make wrong choices. And and the wrong choices are why his ideal will is violated. See, we make the right choices, we're doing the ideal will of God as well as his permissive will. If we don't make right choices, then we don't carry out his will. I'm sure that that over the centuries there have been people who, who have asked this question. Why didn't God just make us so we couldn't sin? Wouldn't that be easier? Well, first of all, we understand that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 tells us, let us make man in our image. What is the image of God? What is God like? Well, God is a reasoning being, a being who is able to choose. He's not forced into one pattern. He makes choices. And so we also make choices. That's why God made us as we are, that we could choose. But if he had made us so that we couldn't sin and that we could only serve him, would there be any love in that for us? Would we serve him because we wanted to? No, we would be serving him because we were compelled to, because that's the way he made us. We had no choice. Now, God never makes bad choices. We do. And that's why his will is often not carried out. In the 19th chapter of Matthew, some Pharisees came to Jesus. And they asked him a question about divorce, about why Moses would allow this. Uh, I mean, that eventually became the thrust of it. And our, our Lord replied to them as they asked about, should a man put away his wife for every cause? In the reply, verse 6 of Matthew 19 says, So then, a man and woman, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They weren't satisfied with that answer. And so, in verse 7, they said, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? 
The response of Jesus, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wife. Why was divorce granted among Jews? Because they were hard-hearted, because they didn't want to make the right choice. But please note that Jesus was careful to point out, but from the beginning, it was not so. That was never God's will. Never God's will. That couples unite and then divorce. Never God's will. Hard hearts are going to violate God's will today. Not just in matters of divorce, but in many other ways. A third way of describing God's will is what we might call the direct will of God. See, over the centuries, God has operated both directly and indirectly. In creation, for example, he spoke things into existence. His will was carried out immediately, directly. Again and again, we see in Genesis 1, then God said, and each time that is recorded by Moses for us, after God said, something happened directly. When we come to the New Testament, Hebrews 11 and verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed, how? By the Word of God. The worlds came into existence. Everything that was created was created because God said, let it happen, and it happened immediately. We see a number of examples in the Bible of God using people sometimes or circumstances sometimes to cause miracles to happen. Things that were not normal. Water coming forth from a rock and, and, a, and a Red Sea opening and allowing people to walk across and closing. We, we see all kinds of miracles. But God doesn't work that way today. And, and I want to note a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. But, but there are some people today who insist on having miracles. At least they think they, they do. They believe there are men who have the power today to heal. and They believe there are people who can speak in languages that they never learned today. And, and to do all other kinds of things beyond the norm. found it interesting. Wayne Jackson whose paper, The Christian Courier, has had articles about the cessation of miracles and the fact that we no longer live in a miraculous age, says that the most irate emails he gets are from people who tell him miracles are still being performed. Maybe they give some kind of an example. But you know what they don't do? They never try to prove it by Scripture. Oh, my Aunt Sally had uh, cancer of the stomach. Now, you never saw the cancer, so you couldn't verify it, but she had cancer. And, and a man laid his hands on her, no more cancer. Healed. They don't prove it by what the Scriptures say, and incidentally, they never document it. They never document it. They never say, I can prove this by this. It's just somebody's word. But they get irate about it. How dare you? How dare you say there aren't miracles today? I especially like the fact that Jackson tells of being tempted. Now, he hadn't done this. Of being tempted to write back 
and provide a miracle of his own. Here's the one he said he would provide. I'm talking like it's him. I was going to go on a business trip from San Francisco to Chicago, but I got to the airport late, and I missed my flight. But what I did was I just got out on the runway, and I started running, and God lifted me up and just took me to Chicago. I flew to Chicago. And he asked, do you think they would believe that? Of course not. But if he says it happened, how could you say it didn't happen? I've often thought of this other illustration. Incidentally, he said, you know what they would ask me? What would you do with your bags? I've thought of this illustration. Somebody says, God spoke to me in a dream last night and he told me this or that. And then you say to the person, you know, God spoke to me in a dream last night too, and he told me to tell you that's not true. Now, how can the person deny that what you say God told him is a lie, but what he tells you is the truth? How can a person do that? How about the indirect will of God? My time won't allow us to say much about this, but we're talking about providence. And providence is definitely a biblical doctrine. And I want to clarify something because even though we don't believe the miraculous is occurring today, we are not saying that we don't believe God still operates in the world. He does. He does. We believe that. Just not miraculously. But you have to trust that God's providence is God's concern. We don't make the providence happen. God causes the providence happen. Even if we can't understand it completely, we accept it. The greatest Bible example, of course, is Joseph. His brother sold him into slavery. He's only 17 years old when he goes into slavery. And he remains in Egypt the rest of his life. And as you know, he had many difficulties. He becomes a servant in somebody's house, and then an evil woman tries to seduce him, and when he won't cooperate, she lies about him, and he gets thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he, he interprets a, a dream that somebody has, and that person gets out, and he's supposed to help him to get out, and he doesn't do it. All of those difficulties. Finally, God gets him out of prison, and he becomes second only to Pharaoh in power. And then his brothers come. To Egypt. And as he's united with them, and you've heard this many, many times, he told them in Genesis 50 and verse 20 that God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God was working it out. I'm convinced Joseph didn't know all of that time when he was in prison and going through all these difficulties that God had a plan for him, but he did. And after he was through all of those trials, he could see God's plan for him. To save people alive, he said. We also know about the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's a man who has been to Jerusalem to worship and he's on his way home. Could God have saved him miraculously? What does he do instead? He tells a preacher to go join him. On that road. And he does. And he teaches him. And he obeys the gospel. 
Now, that wasn't a miracle, but it was providential. And, and, and though it's uh, very difficult, we have to be very careful about saying that we know something is providence. We do believe that God has done things in each of our lives that we really don't explain other than believing that God has blessed us providentially. Just one more. That's the objective will of God. Today, God's will is made known to you and me through the Bible, that wonderful library of 66 books. It is God's word to us. It is God's will for us. And, and, and many people are still looking for God to speak to them directly somehow, to, to do something special for them. And we always wonder why people think God would want to speak only to you when in truth, through God's Word, He's spoken to all of us. You see, all of us look at the Bible and can understand what He wants for our lives because His will for us is clearly revealed there. God's will calls for us to, to, to believe in Christ and to turn from our sins and to confess our faith in Jesus and then to be baptized for the remission of sin. That's not special for one person or two people. That's what God wants for all people to be saved. The objective will of God. We need to search the Scriptures. We need to look for God's will because it's there if we, t if we take the time to look for it. Jesus said, your will be done. I wonder, can you pray that now? Is that in your heart now? Your will be done? If that's really your prayer, then you want to submit your life to Him so that His will can be done in your case as well as in the rest of the world. Are you doing His will? If you need to respond to the invitation tonight to become a Christian, to do the will of God, we want to help you do it. If you're already a Christian and you recognize that in your life God's will has been neglected, not doing God's will correctly, we'll pray with you and for you. If you need to come, do it while we stand and sing.